Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 56. Myth Becomes History. Legend has it that Rome was led for nearly 200 years by kings, but the last king was overthrown. So what were the Romans to do next? They could just elect another king. After all, most of the previous kings had been elected. The reign of Tarquinius Superbus, though, had convinced the Roman patricians that being ruled by a king was a generally bad thing. It was time to think of another way of running the city. Legend has it that the wife of one of the senators, a man called Collatinus, was attacked by Tarquinius Superbus's son. Although not guilty of anything, the shame got to her and she killed herself. This was enough to rile up the anger of the Roman people, and both Tarquinius and his son were banished. The leader of the conspirators was Lucius Junius Brutus, said to be an ancestor of the man who plunged a knife into Julius Caesar many years later. As they were to demonstrate throughout their history, the Romans had a genius for coming up with solutions to difficult problems, and they found the perfect solution to the problem of who would rule next. The senators elected two officials called consuls, who ruled Rome like kings, but only for one year. This was a very wise idea, as the consuls ruled carefully and not as tyrants. If they hadn't, they knew they could be punished by the next consuls once the year was up. It is said that the first two consuls were Brutus and Collatinus. It's from this point on that we speak of the Roman Republic. The word republic itself comes from the Latin, language of the Romans, and from the phrase res publica, which means public matters or matters of state. Legend has it the Republic was founded in 508 BC. The consuls were so important that the year was named after them. The first year of the Republic would not have been numbered, but would have been called the year of Brutus and Collatinus. It's over the next hundred years or so that myth becomes history. Until the sack of Rome by the Gauls, we have very little actual documented historical record and have to rely on stories passed down. As we get closer to the sack of Rome, we can have more confidence that the stories are accurate, but the actual evidence is poor. After the sack of Rome, we have extensive evidence, and history has completely taken over from myth and legend. Before we continue our journey through the semi-factual days of the early Republic, let's backtrack a bit and find out what we actually know about the times up to the expulsion of the last king of Rome. The people we have come to label the Latins are known to have occupied the plain of Latium from around 1500 to 1000 BC, during the Bronze Age. North of Latium was the region known as Etruria, home of the Etruscans. South of Latium, from around 750 BC, was a region we heard about way back in the early chapters of the history of ancient Greece, Magna Graecia. This was populated by colonists from the important cities of Greece. The influence of Greek culture and religion on that of Rome has its origins in the early contact between the small Roman state and the cities of Magna Graecia. There is evidence of Iron Age huts on the Palatine Hill from the 8th century BC, which roughly fits in with the mythical foundation date of Rome, 753. It may be that the young Rome came to be ruled by Etruscans. The fact that the names of two of the later kings, Lucius Tarquinius Priscus and Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, are of Etruscan origin may be a hint that this is correct. The Etruscan civilization is still a bit of a mystery to historians and archaeologists. Etruscan writing does exist, but the language is not of the same origin as other Western European languages, and the writings have never been able to be translated. Their surviving artwork is heavily influenced by Greek art, so they must have had contact with the Greeks. 
The layout patterns of their cities are distinctive, and have the same layout as that of early Rome. The early Roman religion and culture was also heavily influenced by the Etruscans. The Etruscan civilization was the dominant one in central Italy in the 6th century, but Rome never became a fully Etruscan city. It managed to keep its own identity. By the time the Republic came into being, Etruscan influence had waned. Legend has it that in 496 BC, a coalition of towns near Rome formed the Latin League and allied with the exiled Tarquinius Superbus. The Romans battled against the League at Lake Regillus and won, supposedly as the result of the Dioscuri, Castor and Pollux, appearing as horsemen and fighting on the Roman side. The Latins then became allied with Rome and were soon an integral part of Roman society. This made Rome very different from Greece. The Greek city-states always wanted to retain their independence and identity. The Latins were seen as equals in Roman society, whereas a foreigner in a Greek city was always viewed as being less important than a native. The Romans and Latins joined with each other and created something greater than both. Thus Rome expanded, while Greek infighting ensured that Greece never had the same chance, except under Alexander the Great. Roman influence didn't extend beyond Latium for over a hundred years. In around 387 BC, it very nearly all went wrong. A Celtic tribe called the Gauls had crossed the Apennine Hills looking for a new homeland. They were led by a chief called Brennus. There were a few disagreements between Brennus and the Romans about the Gauls attacking Etruscan cities, but nobody is quite sure what caused what happened next. What happened next was that Brennus and the Gauls marched on Rome. The Gauls were huge, hairy and adorned with war paint, and they defeated all the might that the Romans could throw at them, and then stormed into the city itself. Rome was captured and sacked. This was the first time the city had been sacked by an enemy. The people of Rome fled to the Capitoline Hill and watched while the city was stripped of everything valuable. The Gauls stayed in Rome for months, trying to starve the Romans off their hill. In the end, both sides suffered starvation and illness, and soon both wanted an end to the sack. It was agreed that the Gauls would leave if they were paid £1,000 of gold. Rome was so badly destroyed during the sack that all historical records from before that time were lost. That's why it's difficult to extract truth from legend before this time. The truth of what we know of Rome after the sack, though, is much more reliable. We will have a look at what happened after the sack a bit later on. For now, we need to look at the Republic itself. In ancient Rome, under the Republic, there were four classes of people. The lowest status inhabitants were the slaves. Slaves were owned by other people and had no rights whatsoever. The next class were the plebeians. They were free people, but they originally had no real power and were often very poor and had to rely on the upper classes for food and money. The second highest class were the equestrians, sometimes called knights. Their name means rider, as they were given a horse to ride if they were called to fight for Rome. To be an equestrian you had to be rich, but not so rich you had any real power. The highest class were the nobles of Rome. They were called patricians, and all were supposed to be descended from the original hundred senators appointed by Romulus. Only members of the important families were allowed to be patricians. The Claudii and the Julii, the families of Julius Caesar, were two of these important clans. All of the real power in Rome originally lay with them, and for many years all of the members of the Senate were from the patrician class. As time went on, some plebs became as rich as some of the patricians through their own hard work. It wasn't possible for them, no matter how rich, to become patricians. Everything went swimmingly for quite a few years, 
until the plebs realised they really didn't have any power, even though they supposedly lived in a republic. They began to resent the patricians. This resentment came to a head when Rome was threatened by external enemies. The plebs refused to fight. When they were persuaded to, they agreed, but only if they were let off all of their debts when they came back. This was agreed, and the fighting began. When it was over, though, the senators completely went back on their promise. Now, this seems like a bad idea. You promise something to a load of heavily armed soldiers, and when they come to get it, still heavily armed, you say no. Not wise. The plebs were furious and marched to the top of the Aventine Hill, and refused to fight again until they got their way. Not surprisingly, they got their way. Not only that, it was agreed that the plebs would be allowed to have their own assembly, and to elect ten tribunes who could veto a decision made by the consuls. Veto means I forbid. Any decision made by a consul could be stopped by a tribune. The tribunes were sacrosanct, which meant anyone who attacked a tribune could be killed. This action by the common people is called the secession of the plebs. Now that the plebs were protected by the law, it was realised that somebody needed to write the law down. A whole legal system was coded on twelve bronze tablets, called the Twelve Tables. Some of the laws still form part of the law systems of modern countries, including Britain and the USA. By the mid-300s BC, the plebs were agitating for even more power. In 367, a historic law was passed which allowed one of the consuls for the year to be a pleb. By 342, one of the consuls had to be a pleb. Although the Roman Republic was not a true democracy, the people slowly gained more and more power. As Rome grew, the administration required to keep the state running grew with it. Being part of that administration was the standard career path for a young, ambitious Roman noble. The highest office was, of course, the consul. Below the consuls were a whole series of other administrators who were also elected. Immediately below the consuls was a praetor, who was allowed to command armies and preside over the senate. Next came the aediles, who were responsible for Rome itself, the water supply, food and even the games. Below the aediles and bottom of the administrative pile came the quaestors, who generally performed financial and legal duties. The other office that could be held was that of censor. The censors were only elected every five years and were only in place for up to 18 months. Their role was to produce or revise the list of citizens and assess how much they owned and their level of morality. They had the power to remove senators from their roles if they thought they hadn't been behaving themselves. The censors were usually ex-consuls. The career path of a young Roman noble was heavily procedurised and became known as the cursus honorum. A young man was eligible to become a quaestor at the age of 28. If he did well, he could then become an aedile and then could seek election as a praetor. Those who did really well could then seek election as consul and maybe then become a censor. None of the offices could be held for more than a year and all were elected. Thus the Roman Republic kept a check on the abuse of power. If everything was going really badly, the Senate had the ability to appoint what was known as a dictator. A dictator had absolute power, just like a king, but had to give up power after six months. This wasn't done very often, and all dictators gave up power as they were supposed to. Well, for most of history of the Republic they did. Two men, Lucius Cornelius Sulla and Gaius Julius Caesar, would break this rule which would become one of the things that led to the downfall of the Republic. One of the earliest dictators was a man called Lucius Quinctius Cincinnatus. 
Rome was under fire from its local neighbours and the situation was desperate enough to require the drastic solution. Cincinnatus, who was a farmer by trade, entered Rome and accepted the dictatorship. He pulled together all men of fighting age, marched out and crushed the Romans' opponents. When he returned to the city, he celebrated a triumph. He then did what every dictator was required to do. He resigned his office. He'd only been in place for 15 days. Like many of the famous occurrences before the sack of Rome, this story is probably not entirely true. But does it really matter? No. Stories like those of Cincinnatus were central to the psyche of the Roman people. This great man, a symbol of Roman hard work due to his farming background and a symbol of Roman might due to his great victory, represented all the virtues to which Romans aspired. He is commemorated in the USA, as the city of Cincinnati is named after him. The real power, over finance and foreign policy, lay with the Senate. They debated and agreed new laws and policies. These decisions had to be confirmed by the assemblies of the people, but in general, the assemblies followed the guidance of the Senate. The Roman Republic was a very successful government. It lasted almost 500 years. In comparison, the United States of America, which is an old republic in the modern world, has only existed for less than 250 years. The system was less democratic than the democracy in Athens, and thus didn't blow one way and then the other. It was more democratic than Sparta, which allowed it to be flexible, while still being very militaristic. It had its problems, though, and would eventually fall, and the Roman Empire would come to be ruled by emperors. But that's for later. Let's now have a look at the conquest of the Italian peninsula. In the mid-300s, a people called the Samnites captured and occupied an Etruscan city called Capua. Rome was also expanding in that direction, and the two came into contact. In 338 BC, the citizens of Capua asked Rome for help, and they signed a treaty. This gave them rights almost equal to those of the Romans and Latins, and extended Rome's influence outside Latium. By 304 BC, the Samnites were on the back foot and allied with the Etruscans, Gauls and other Italians in a final attempt to defeat the Romans. The war was inconclusive, but round two, nine years later, wasn't. The Romans crushed the forces of the alliance and thus became the greatest power in the northern Italian peninsula. The Romans then turned their attention south. We've already heard about the takeover of Magna Graecia, and we don't need to tell the whole story again. Suffice to say that by 270 BC, all of Magna Graecia had been absorbed into the growing Roman world. Rome was the master of Italy. As Rome grew during this time, the foundations of what would make it great were put into place. Coins came into use, an idea learned from the Greeks. Farming was still the most prevalent profession, and land ownership was the basis of wealth. Taxation allowed soldiers to be paid and keep the army strong. Trade increased, and Rome became wealthier. This accelerated after the final victory over Hannibal, which we will hear about in the next chapter. In the Senate, great men rose. Although the senators were supposed to be of equal standing, it was clear that, to use George Orwell's famous phrase, some were more equal than others. A senator's importance was represented by his dignitas. Those who held high office, particularly ex-consuls, had more dignitas than those who didn't. Those whose ancestors had achieved great things had considerable dignitas. Those senators with the greatest dignitas got to speak before those who had less in senatorial debates. Dignitas could be gained by winning Gloria. Gloria effectively meant glory, and those who had achieved great things in war had the most Gloria. 
The constant striving for Gloria drove men on and ensured the continuing victories necessary to conquer other peoples. In the Senate, the oldest and most experienced member had a lot of influence and tended to speak in debates immediately after the consuls. This senator was called the Princeps Senatus, or First Senator. This title, Princeps, would be cleverly adopted by one Augustus Caesar when finally, stealthily, he dismantled the Republic. But that's for later. Next time, we'll hear about the make-or-break war which turned Rome into a genuine Mediterranean power. And we will meet Republican Rome's most formidable enemy, a Carthaginian known as Hannibal. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.